0: Hi there, I'm Diksha Shivasava, and I'm the implementation lead for diverse data at Genomics England, and you're listening to The G Word. Through the conversations we have on this podcast, we hope to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses. Hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. So we want to talk more about this word, the G Word, Genomics. Today we're going to have a discussion about the history of race science, the use of language, and its implications on genomics. And to guide us on this merry journey, I'm joined by and Bernie from European Bioinformatics Institute to help interview science journalist Angela Saini, author of best-selling books Superior, Inferior, and Geek Nation. Welcome to The G Word. Before we launch into all the big questions, Angela, tell us a bit more about your background and how it led you to your current path to becoming a renowned science journalist.
1: I studied engineering at university and um, I got involved in student politics and that's how I ended up uh, becoming a reporter. And for the first eight, nine years of my career, I was actually just a general journalist i was covering news and politics and crime uh, first i worked in india then i worked at the itn and then i worked at the bbc and um, i went back to science just because i missed it so much and i landed i think as a result of all the other kind of reporting i've done on wondering actually what goes on behind the scenes in science and treating it as a beat in the same way that a political reporter would treat politics as a beat in as much as not just communicating science but understanding the politics within it and the complicated social and ethical questions it wow. raises and why scientists do and believe the things that they do um, and i think especially in recent years it's become world politics the way they are i think we can so clearly see particularly in the pandemic we can so so clearly see that politics and science go hand in hand that scientists are human and they're affected by what's going on in the world around them and so when I write about gender or race uh, or class or whatever I'm writing about um, I want to understand how our ideas about human nature are affected and affect um, what's going on out in the world.
2: That's great Angela and then maybe diving in one step further what what made you pick up, you know, genetics, eugenics, race as a topic? Was there a moment where you said this is a, or or a reason, um, a, a moment for you where you're like, right, I've really got to get stuck into that topic.
1: It's something I've always been interested in, the science of race. And I think that's partly because of why I got into journalism in the first place. So where I grew up was a very active area for the far right. And, just being exposed to that and witnessing it firsthand was one of the reasons why at university I got involved in anti-racist politics. I was one of the co-chairs of the anti-racism committee on the student union at Oxford. So I wrote about it then. In the 90s, it really felt as though, even though this was an issue high in everyone's heads in the 90s and 2000s, we thought about it, but we thought Everything's getting better. We don't, you know, this is this is going to stop being the big problem that it used to be, racism. But with the election of Trump and with the rise of the far right and ethnic nationalism around the world, which I, you know, has only become more and more acute uh, in recent years, um, I thought it would be a good time to revisit that and also kind of just get clear in my head these questions of identity that I'd always had about myself, you know my Britishness, what it really meant, my Indianness, what it really meant, Um, what science said about group difference. And so I wrote Superior really, unlike my other books, for myself um, rather than for anybody else, because I just wanted some clarity. And it was very cathartic in that sense. When I finished the book, I honestly didn't care what anyone... I didn't care if anyone read it and I didn't care what anyone thought about it because I felt like a huge weight that I'd been carrying... Since I was ten years old, had just been lifted, and whether or not the reader felt any sense of release or clarity when they read it, at the very least, I did.
2: And, and I think in that book, you you talk about address, but also sometimes struggle with what language, what identity, what labels should we use about these these different things? You know, there's a very extreme world, maybe French world, where we just we just we just make all of these things illegal and we just we just say it's the Mm -hmm. you know the labels the labels are not useful and, and and let's walk away from them and yet i think there's so many times where we need to express things and we need words and language how do you think about that and maybe also how how has your thinking changed in the process of of investigating this and over the last couple of years the journey that you've just talked about there of yourself British, Indian heritage, I I don't even know what the the way you prefer to to label uh, um, uh, these things uh, to now. So what do you think about language and labels um, in this space?
1: Uh, There's been a huge profound change in the way that I think about uh, my identity and this idea of labeling to begin with. I mean, I do think given that we are one human species we know that now that we're so homogeneous as a species that isn't to say that difference doesn't exist but you know that the vast majority of what we think of as human difference is cultural and linguistic the act of categorization in science itself i've come to see as fundamentally fraught and political and given that these categories have to be in some way they depend on the categorizer because otherwise you know how do you come up with them and it's very mm. when you have difference that doesn't exist across discrete lines when it's fuzzy then how you come up with these categories is really up to you so I think for me what used to feel like something solid no longer feels solid anymore it doesn't feel tangible there's actually a wonderful book by the philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah that um, helped shape my own sense of identity, the lies that bind, and the uh, Appiah is of mixed heritage, His, he um, I think his mother is white English, his dad is black Ghanaian, and it means that his physical features are actually quite difficult to place. When he travels the world, people are always asking him where he's from, he's very, he's, he's got very ambiguous features. And his response to this isn't to say, well, this is my identity and this is how you must think about me and describe me. What he says instead is, well, actually, this is what identity is. It doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to the person who's looking at you. Um, Mm -hmm. And you don't always get to define yourself in that sense. And these labels change depending on the place and time that you're in. You can be categorized in so many different ways. Myself, um, as I write about in the book, you know." you can look at me and say brown, this is, you know, a brown girl is the way that I would be described in the current political climate that we're in. But you go back to, you know, 18th century naturalists, Johann Blumenbach would have described me as Caucasian, because Caucasian for him meant everyone from Western Europe to North India, which would include my family. Politically, And this was true when I was part of anti-racism movements, but it's still true for my union, the NUJ, National Union of Journalists. I am a black member for them because politically to not be white in the 80s and 90s and to some extent even now was to be black. So I'm black, white and brown, depending on where you sit, what your perspective is on the world. And that's true for most people if you travel the world you will be categorised differently. I live in New York now. The one question that is asked on every single form, even when I go to the library, when I applied for my library card, was Hispanic or not Hispanic. And it's a question I was never asked, obviously, in the UK, because it's not a salient question in the UK. Why would anyone ask it? But it is politically salient here in this city. So we have to understand that these labels have the meaning that they do because in the time that we're in, that's how they have come to matter and they will always change who gets to be white has always changed who gets to be black has always changed and it's still changing and we may have completely different labels in the future so when people say to me you know can we come up with better categories what do you think of BAME you know a lot of people have a problem with BAME and I just Mm. think well you know as a journalist I just use whatever is current at the time and people understand in the full knowledge that in 10 years it will be something else. And that's how it will always be. There will never be any perfect labels because such a thing doesn't exist. But it's also allowed me to get a less kind of um, firm or kind of rigid sense of identity for myself. I understand that this my racial identity or ethnic identity doesn't exist somewhere molecular in my body. It exists out there in the world in the way that other people think.
2: Other people perceive you. And you must must um, have an interesting experience in New York about your facial and uh, your visual features and the accent. That must (laughs) bamboozle some people. (laughs) Is that the Um, case? Do people have to... Uh, like like double take and and um, and explore even more i mean do you find that i've come to really hold myself back from exploring and, and 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 let the person tell me when they're ready what is important about them do you know what i mean i think it's a really yeah. bad habit of uh, of, of having <laughs> to pigeonhole everybody Or you have a conversation
1: with them. There's an extra dynamic that comes with being an immigrant though, because I know in London, where I grew up, there's a very large South Asian immigrant population. And it means that very quickly and easily people will assume me to be Indian or at least South Asian and sometimes talk to me in their local language in the expectation that I will understand them. And very often I will. In New York, the interesting thing is there's a very large Hispanic population. And often people will come up to me speaking spanish thinking that i'm hispanic because the hispanic population outnumbers at least where i live the um south asian population and i get embarrassed sometimes that i don't speak spanish (laughs) i can't respond to them i can't relate to them in the way that they would want me to be able to relate to them i can't give them i can't tell them the bus times because i have no idea what they're saying and and the same happens with my son people will often come up to my son and assume speak to him in spanish thinking he's hispanic um so it, has, it does create, and you're right, as you say, they don't expect me to speak in an English accent always, but it's interesting being in a different social environment racially yeah. and to see how different the codes can be in these different environments, because again, it highlights the fallacy of this bio, biological idea of race.
0: And just as a follow up to the categorization question, within the context of genomics, is there a world where you think we can use categories in a way that can benefit the historically underrepresented groups?
1: Um, I think we have to understand what these categories are and their limitations, and I think sometimes we, very often we don't. So there are a lot of papers I get sent in which people, for instance, I I got sent one just recently, and uh, sorry, I'm and this is coming from memory now, so the facts may be incorrect to some degree, but it was a. Um, a Scottish study in which researchers got samples of populations in Zimbabwe, black, white and brown or coloured. I can't remember the terminology that they use. But these are very small populations they were studying with regards to a certain health condition. And in the publication, the final publication, they claim to have found a racial difference in uh, this condition based on this Zimbabwe study mm. and when I emailed them and said well actually you've only really studied people in that one particular city or particular area and we know that health disparities along racial lines are very often especially for the things that happen to kill us the most don't tend you know to be entirely rooted in our bodies They're because of the circumstances in how we live diet experience you know Um, circumstances so how can you extrapolate you know that study in that one place to some kind of racial generalization about the whole world you wouldn't go for instance and do a study on health poverty in Glasgow and then say you know everything about poor people everywhere in the world that just wouldn't make any sense and sometimes I think and they put their hands up and they said yes we should have been more clear this is a very small sample they had very small numbers of people And they couldn't really make those generalizations. And I worry sometimes that we do racial studies in certain environments, and we assume that they'll apply everywhere. But when it comes to health particularly, the race and health are far more, you know, it's not just about genetics. It's about so many other things, unless you're looking at a particular genetic condition. Um, So just say you did the study in Zimbabwe. And
2: and also, I I totally agree that we, we tend to attribute a lot of things which are driven by social environment or social structuring, Mm -hmm. um, because these labels are coincident with certain visible differences and it's, it's tied up with some of these visible differences. We Mm -hmm. assume that, that there's a, there's a, you know, a genetic component to, to lots of things here where, where really, when you dig into it, it's, it's just not true. But what I think is, underlying this question is a slightly different direction is say for example in the genomics England diversity cohort where one one does want to address disparities there is some cross current here between you know these categories are meaningless or their categories are social and yet we want to address the disparities which are related to the categories mm-hmm. so are we you, you know, are we chasing our own tail here, or, or is it appropriate to, in this case, for example, oversample certain groups that we feel are not represented well enough in the in the databases? I think that's that's a a very practical question um, uh, at the bottom of this categorization. Trying to, when we use categorization to try and address the disparities due to categorization, if you see what I mean.
1: Yeah, and I know this is something you grapple with every single day (laughs) in your work, and it must be very hard. (laughs) Because you're right, it it isn't the case that, you know, genetic difference is uniform. You know, it's not that, you know, you have a baby and they won't be genetically related to you. They are. So there are patterns there. Um, They're not racial. They don't run along racial lines in the way that, in that big colour-coded racial way, but they, they are there. So how do you get diversity into your studies when the only language you have to describe diversity is a racial one and that is the fraught area here i wonder sometimes if when it comes to race we could just think about race the same way that we think about that we used to think about class you know 100 years ago or more in the british eugenics Mm -hmm. movement it was actually quite common for people to think about those at the very bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum as being genetically different from from wealthier people, mm-hmm. um that they yeah. were a kind of residuum, they had genetically more criminality, they were less intelligent, they were more indigent, all of that. Um, and we don't think about class in that way anymore. Obviously it would just be ridiculous to think about class in that way. So why can we not make that same mental mm-hmm. leap with race? Why can we not see that this is a category in which people may exist over generations Um, But many of the problems that we perceive or the disparities that we see out in society, the differences that we notice are not because of some underlying quality that's inside their bodies. And I don't see any reason why we can't do that. It should be possible to do that. But it's that muddiness and that we've become so familiar with not thinking about the categories in that way that I think makes it harder and harder. But theoretically, I feel like we should be able to make that leap.
2: Does your experience in India with caste, which mm. is sort of somewhere between, it's not quite, you know, it's a very Indian process, right? I mean, it's a very societal, to what extent does the does the structuring in Indian society give us a different perspective on this? Or is it just another society with another very complicated social structure? So it's quite interesting, I find thinking about that example.
1: Yeah, and actually it was it was a question, caste was a very fascinating question for scientific racists and eugenicists as well in the 19th century and early 20th century. They were mm-hmm. obsessed with the Indian caste system because for them this represented a society in which the principles of racial segregation were really made real. You know, through this Mm this cultural system in which there were there are there are still, or you know, less than they used to be, there, there were these very strict taboos around intercaste mixing certainly intercaste marriage and there's still you know even to this day there is still some taboo around people marrying between castes and having relationships between castes and which has created these so-called endogamous groups um you know communities in which everyone is intermarried and sometimes that does cause genetic problems as well we've seen for ourselves when you have a small group of people in which everyone is marrying each other You do get a higher likelihood of Mm. certain genetic conditions playing out. You see that in the Parsis of India. They have a higher incidence of certain cancers. So I think there is a parallel there between race and class to some extent, because there are social taboos here as well as um, a perceived kind of deep-rooted difference in how people are seen to be, but also how they look. There is some sense that. You can tell someone's caste also by looking at them, by their skin color or their size and, and other things, although that, that's quite fuzzy. Um, and what f- I found really interesting is that when I interviewed some prominent Indian geneticists, they felt that caste was genetic, that there were certain traits that certain castes shared that made them better at certain jobs. <laughs> they were somehow suited to them, which mirrors the prejudices within the country itself. What we do know is that as um, caste barriers are broken down in India, you know, the government has tried very hard through reservations and affirmative action to encourage people, despite the taboos and the huge amount of prejudice, to do other jobs. Well, lo and behold, they do those jobs just as well as anybody else. You know, within my family, which was my dad's family was designated a martial race, the saneys. They, they were warriors Um, my dad's family were all in the military well none of us are in the military well very few of us are in the military now and we're doing just fine we're doing all kinds of different things so it's really I do find it interesting that we attach these very fixed ideas to certain groups of people based on the social circumstances what we have to remember is it happens everywhere obviously
2: and I think the other thing that you bring out in your books and and as you did in the intro is that scientists are human. So scientists come through these systems, scientists grow up in a system. These things are quite deep and inherent in the way people are brought up, taught, expect to behave and these things. And so I, in some sense, I think it's no surprise that the sciences that study these areas get dragged by the societal processes around them and not just dragged. In some sense, they've well, in, in the case of eugenics and other things, you know, the science almost came about to support the justification of some of this as well. So I strongly think as geneticists, we've got to understand and own that history and then move on from it. Do you know what I mean? We have to, we, but we, what we can't do is just pretend it doesn't exist. And so it's a practical advice about how we, we geneticists or genomicists should go about that. What strikes you as the the best way to tackle that interweaving of the history of science, the history of genetics, these topics, and when we're talking to the broad communities around us about the future?
1: I do think there's been a greater reckoning around the history. Certainly, I see that here in the US. You know, I've spoken a couple of times at the NIH. And the NIH has completely changed the way that it frames race and thinks about race under Francis Collins. I mean, they just don't think about it in the way that they used to. Researchers have completely changed that approach. That's not to say they don't collect and mandate to collect ethnic and racial data. They do, but they just they view it in a different way from the way they used to. And I see that also, I've seen it in many of the top universities here and medical schools. What I worry about sometimes is when we focus on the history we assume it's a kind of dead history that we have to be aware of and that we're not affected by it now well society remains biased it still has prejudices there are still demographic problems within genetics and genomics and to imagine that you know that we are somehow supremely more enlightened than people were even 50 years ago i think would be a huge mistake um, and that this is where it gets difficult i know that people don't want to hear that they need to introspect about their own work right now. But that I think that is what needs to happen. This isn't just about something that people thought 100 years ago. This is about problems with the way that these ideas are framed right now in published work every single day. Um, mm-hmm. I still see problems with when people you know, mm-hmm. use racial categories never defining them. You know, never having any kind of mention there in the abstract or the paper itself about what they actually mean when they are using these racial or ethnic categories. Just assuming that they're biological without any kind of interrogation of of that. And that's how race science lives on into the present.
0: I was just going to ask, actually, because I don't think we covered um, how the concept of race came about and and basically ask you how you think it manifests today in the modern day and particularly within healthcare and genomics?
1: Well it came I think it's very easy to imagine that these racial categories we use now have been around forever and they haven't. That's not to say that people haven't recognized human difference. Of course they have but in antiquity for instance they didn't think about skin colour in the way that we think about skin colour now. They didn't attach the same meanings to skin colour as they did now. These colour-coded racial categories were invented at a point in time around European Enlightenment, so concurrent with the rise of modern Western scientific establishment, in the same way that other things were being classified, other flora and fauna were being classified. And I, I guess it made sense to them at the time to undergo that, you know, to undertake that process of categorizing humans, because if you could categorize other things, then why not? And in perhaps in their imaginations. And this was a mix of myth and reality. They would see difference in the world and imagine it to be genetic or, or they didn't have the language of genetics, then, but biological, somehow innate to, to some degree. But there were there was a lot of debate even then in the 18th century about how many categories there were, how this division should take place. Um, loads of different ideas. The fact we landed on skin colour, I think, reflects a politics of colonialism and slavery at the time that was already in the social world starting to marry blackness with slavery. So I was in New Orleans the other week, and there's a wonderful historical museum there. And in that museum, they have this um, French code noir black code and this was a book a very thick book that told people how they had to behave based on their skin color and um at the beginning when that code noir was first written it was just to apply to slaves over time though it came to apply to all black people so you can see already in that time we were moving away from thinking of um slavery as a condition in which anyone could be held to slavery as a condition particularly associated with blackness and then when you associate slavery with blackness you get a sense of superiority and inferiority between people and then you start then you get this emergence of ideas around well are these people naturally subservient are they naturally subordinate in the same way that men women in european thinking were seen to be intellectually subordinate and naturally subordinate to men in this patriarchal system. So that was feeding into the classification that was being created. And it stuck because the politics allowed it to stick, obviously. So rather than challenging it, what you get in the 19th century, which is really the peak of all of this, when these ideas become firmly embedded in scientific thinking, or at least Western scientific thinking, is people doing... believing the most incredible things, like black people have denser bones, or that they have thicker skin, or they don't feel pain in the same way. Because all these political and scientific ideas by now had completely meshed together and formed this kind of solid hole in the scientific imagination. And we still live with the consequences of that to this day. It's become so difficult to extricate ourselves from it. But even now, well-intentioned, good, you know, anti-racist scientists can't help but wonder in the back of their minds, well, is there something to this here? There must be, because we've lived with it for so long.
2: You describe that very well. And I think another complication that I've noted is that scientists also use this everyday language. So European, European-American, African-American. So it's very everyday language. Mm. And then we use that same phrase for something that we published in a paper, which is in fact sort of vaguely, it is associated with with the boxes that people tick, but it's not the same thing. You did something different. um, When you group these people together, you did something with, with, um, you know, principal components is the classic. And it's not the same thing, and we don't really, we don't really talk about it we need a shorthand for this group so we use the shorthand which people and it's this this is this reinforcement or this bolstering of some of these ideas that keep on happening and it it i mean i think we've still as you say it's not it's not merely what we did as a scientific field in the past in in the birthplace of genetics and eugenics it is still how we write some papers now. And I just don't think it's helpful. Um, so, as you say, we've got to have introspection as individuals, but we've also got to have introspection, I think, as a field to get over this, um, uh, to get through this. It uh, frustrates me, as you can see.
1: Yeah, I know. But I wonder I would love to know why you think that persists, why that introspection doesn't happen to the degree that it should, especially now.
2: I that's a good question. It's kind of a rather meta question. Um, I think for many scientists and many clinicians, I think we should also touch on. And you mentioned this in Zimbabwe about there's sort of basic research. And then there's also clinical research in this space as well. And sort of for a number of people, it's not the main thing they're trying to do. And it's not the main thing in their, their, their forefront. And my my colli- uh, colleague Erwin Scally comments that human geneticists are not very good human population geneticists. So they keep on writing all these things, which you know the population geneticists say, well that's you know, leave that one behind. That's that's clearly rubbish. So I think there is a business of, of of focus, but I think it is wrapped up in what you've said, Angela, that people grow up in a particular society; these ideas somehow fit. so they don't spend a lot of time worrying about them because Mm -hmm. you know that goes goes along uh, the the kind of upbringing um, societal side and your example of the Indian geneticists I think is a really good way of of seeing how society around you shapes the way you think about a a particular thing Mm -hmm. but we need more challenge here inside the tent and and outside the tent
1: Because I do wonder sometimes if researchers know at one level, on one level, that these um, categories are social constructs, but there's another part of them that wonders that if they just keep plugging away, that maybe one day there will be genetic (laughs) meaning found in them. They imagine that it's there, they just haven't been able to find it yet. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I actually wonder sometimes when we say uh, race is a social construct. For some people, for both scientists and, and non-scientists, they're like, eh, "Wait a second, I can tell." <laughs> you can't give me. <laughs> yeah. and, and, so, and so, so the way I try and describe that is, is, there's a very thin link, which is very often about skin colour genetics and about, uh, you know, a number of, of visual features which links our concepts of ethnicity or race and and genetics. There is a, but it's a thin, it's a very thin link. And I think that's more helpful because I think another, that's the other thought in the people's, in the back of people's heads, which is, you you know, who's, who's killing who here? I mean, as you know, human genetics and and human population is so much messier. It's, It's so messy that these kind of, crazy big categories there is no categorization it, it just doesn't make sense at all and somehow we need to get that a little bit deeper into our curriculums in many many places i think to help people break break these things up but i appreciated reading your book for those and also for this this sort of outsider challenge view you that you bring i think to the to the science perspective as well so those are those for, for the people on the podcast, I highly recommend <laughs> *Superior* and inferior. But I think we've got a long—I I, I think it's—it's uh, it's quite a long journey um, uh, to come here. And then just bringing this back to Genomics England, I know that you know as an organisation, it has these practical questions. I mean, it's really practical things. What? what how do you? What do you call the? PCA plot blob that is in the middle that largely corresponds to white British people because people who, you, you know, how, 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 what, you know, what English words do I use for this, for this thing? So there's a lot of practical questions for Genomics England, both internally and also in interacting with um, the communities across the UK. Um, so I don't think this is a finished um, article
1: no absolutely and I can imagine it must be difficult to kind of navigate this and and land on a language that doesn't perpetuate the same problems um, but allows people to conceptually look beyond um, the way that they they always have and I do th- I mean fundamentally I think and I would say this as a journalist it's a matter of narratives that it's just about the narratives we have around race yeah. that make us channel our thinking yeah. in certain directions. And it is possible to, to change those narratives because they change around class. You know, I, I come back to this. if The fact that in a century we change the way that we think about class, we don't think about it, or at least we tend not to think about it in a biological way, means we could do it with race. But I guess it's harder um, because, like you say, there are these kind of very fuzzy but real visual cues here. Um, And we're so well-trained from a very young age to pick up on them. I remember when I first lived in India and I went to rent a flat, you know, because of the horrible colorism and prejudice in India, um, I was told to fill in my skin shade. And I really didn't know what to put in because I just thought, well, am I not brown like pretty much everybody else in this city? I didn't know what to put. And it was my rental agent who said to me, no, no, you have a certain shade and they have a language for those different skin shades in India that is completely recognizable if you've lived there your whole life you will know exactly what that color is and he was the one who said okay Andrea you're wheatish you put down wheatish here and that is your official skin shade so that you know from now on um so it just goes to show that you know like you say depending on the society that you're in you're trained to pick up on the differences that are socially salient in that environment. And once you've done that, it's very difficult then to live your life without constantly thinking about them and okay. categorising people when you meet them. Um, and that goes for scientists too, you know, like <laughs> we're just humans yeah, like absolutely. everybody else.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. And and that I think goes also to, yeah, just try to step back sometimes and give people space to sort of define themselves using their own, not, not, not only their own words, but their own time, you know, you don't, I I, I do think this business of having to, I mean, that's the kind of matter thing, having to like put people into categories before you can listen to them is a very odd, when you think about it, it's a very odd kind of uh, uh, process.
0: So I think this is a perfect time to ask uh, a question to both of you actually, as this can obviously be a pretty uncomfortable topic to broach, especially with uh, organizations and institutions. So how would you recommend working with institutions who are interrogating these issues internally um, without necessarily alienating them and making them feel that that guilt that often is coupled with um, these discussions?
2: Gosh, I'll let Angela start with that one.
1: (laughs) Um, I I have seen this a little bit firsthand because the last couple of years I've been working with some museums and scientific institutions, sometimes at the board level, um, around issues like this. And it is very, very hard. Um, Sometimes there are blind spots um, that when they're pointed out, people can be quite defensive. Um, And what I've learned, and I hope nobody judges me for this, is I just learned to tailor my language depending on the audience that I'm with. Um, just to make sure that I get as much progress as possible in the spaces that I'm in. Um, so there are some phrases that people immediately make some people, put some people on edge, like decolonization. You know, that, that is a phrase that in certain museum spaces. I can't use because immediately, it, you know, leaving aside what that actually means in practice, people will not want to hear about it. But if you say it, for example, as contextualising the past, or presenting more, you know, broad histories or more accurate histories, then suddenly it's a lot easier to have those very same conversations. Um, It kind of reflects the age that we're in, that phrases that shouldn't be toxic or ideas that shouldn't be toxic. For example, here in the US, there's a huge backlash at the moment against so-called critical race theory, which really is just the social scientific study of race and racism and what it means It's really absolutely fair and legitimate (laughs) that this should be studied and understood Um, but there's a huge movement against it in some states um, because they see it as threatening to their sense of self their sense of identity what it means to be an American their pride in the country Um, and so how do you make progress in a situation like that and I think it's um, as much as it may hurt sometimes we have to try and meet people in the middle and make progress that way but I've seen it happen I think it is possible to make it happen
2: I think that's incredibly um, pragmatic Um, and I noticed some other things you know this um, institutional racism racism is a really kind of it's a very powerful word to throw around and people you know they really even if they can they can understand what unconscious bias means and that institutional racism is the kind of combinations of many many small bits of unconscious bias actually talking about it with using the raci- using the word racism people feel very attacked and they can get very defensive I, I've definitely seen that so we keep on coming up with new bits of language and uh, you know the lamy report had this disproportionality um, kind of phrase it's like a new way of talking about, unconscious bias and, and and these things. So it's a new language, a new way of, of, um, uh, of exploring this. But I think one of the things which, I think there is some value about being straightforward about the things which are straightforward. And so, you know, that goes to this business of, of race as a social construct. I think if, if we make that too absolute, it prevents an understanding of what we're trying to communicate mm. uh, sometimes. So that's why I, you know, I like to use also bring in things like skin color and make analogies with hair color, and these other things or height uh, sometimes. That helps I think people put some of these things that they know, because they see it into into a better context. But you know, both as as an individual, I think the hardest thing to to really tackle is not the, the the conscious and the deliberate conversations. It is the unconscious bias that 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 just like laces through society and stuff like that, and that's where one has to be much more deliberate. One has to have processes. One has to, you know, one has to really look at the entire system. And I have come to value. Those processes, as well, as part of the kind of aspect of of shifting the unconscious bias problem that exists in many places, and of course we also have this headache in um, in gender, gender roles in work, gender roles in meetings, uh, all of these things. So that goes to to having good processes, I think.
1: You know, the one of the issues here, though, is uh, so I was just recently um, interviewing primatologist, Franz Duval, who is you know, one of the world's leading primatologists. He's just written a book on gender um, where he tries to look at what he's learned about other primates and apply it to um, humans, which is fraught, as you can imagine. It's not easy. Um, but one thing he told me, which is really fascinating, was that the things that he says about, for example, female-dominated primate species or sexual differences you know, the, the kind of things that he writes about and the things that he says are more easily accepted when he says them than when his female colleagues say them. That they, it's much harder for them. And that, again, speaks to this kind of bias within the sciences, that if you're a certain, if you come from a certain background, you are not seen as objective just by virtue of who you are, something that you can't avoid. And that's why one of the problems here is that objectivity gets rooted in a certain kind of person and not in others. Every, everyone else is compromised in some way because we've experienced racism or we've experienced sexism. Whereas if you've only ever been in the position of not experiencing it or possibly having perpetrated it, that somehow you, you are uniquely neutral here. And that is why yeah. I have to work so much harder sometimes to make the case that I make because um, people don't believe me as easily. This is why I rely so heavily on the examples and data. I give, you know, quite solid examples when I'm giving talks, because if I don't, people would just turn around and say, "Well, you would say that, wouldn't you? What, you know, that's exactly what we'd expect."
2: Mm-hmm. I, I think that's it's both awful, Angela, and it's also—I mean, I'm sure that's true—and <laughs> um, and it's one of those kind of weird meta problems as well that we're somehow we're still talking with the same biases even inside of science, if you see what I mean, yeah. And back to the institutional question for me, I think the other thing that one has to recognize is that progress doesn't happen quickly. And uh, it's much more important that there is steady progress that is substantially changing the organization than just trying to make the biggest impact in one year so we we i do think we need to think about this in a in a multi multi-year multi individual uh, way
0: i want to thank both of you you've really exemplified the power of language and given us a lot to think about here at Genomics England and as well as at the diverse data program so thank you so much and we'll continue to fight the good fight on our end thank you wonderful Well, that's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to this discussion about the G-Word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. You can find out more about Angela Saini and her work at angelasaini.co.uk and discover all her brilliant work. If you have any views on these topics or have a person in mind you would like us to interview, do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and that if you've enjoyed listening, giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out more about the series. We appreciate your support very much. Until next time, I'm Diksha Shavasava, and see you on the next episode of The G Word.